Listen here, sir. These Levi's are gonna be made in China. Yeah. Can you believe it? I was looking at Holocaust pictures the other day. <laughs> and I like, this is my want. Um, and wow, that was bad. Like, and I know uh, I'm so interested in the Holocaust because it is such like a, it is the truly, like truly the first sort of mechanization of um, sort of like war and killing in a way that, you know, everyone always says, oh, that's really brutal or that's really like bestial, you know what I mean? But actually in Dostoevsky right now, he, he says like, wow, you know, humans can devise such more sort of like subtle and awful forms of cruelty that like monkeys would never like a monkey would never like invent the holocaust you know what i mean right so yeah no it just was like super horrifying to me as it should be right but then i was thinking about oh man the mulch you know well uh, i don't know you know <laughs> uh yeah and so i guess i i feel a little bit worse about talking about the mulch and also people like think i'm being serious like i, I forget where i was i was at a party or something and i was telling people about like mulching people and they were like oh that's really freaky man I was like, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but often, as of course I think you know, it's really hard to tell when I'm kidding, like on purpose. Um, but uh, yeah, sometimes I think that can be a little bit uh, disarming for people, which is, you know, that's like, the, uh, can I tell you my life hack? This Please. is my life hack and I'm going to reveal this. I, I told you my life hack last time. <laughs> GTD did, I tell you, GTD, oh my gosh. Yeah, I write everything down and then I pray to Steve Jobs and then I sacrifice a Microsoft, you know, tablet at the foot of Steve Wozniak's, you know, his driveway. Was um, Was has been saying some weird shit. No way. Yeah, he's he's, Conspiracy? he's he's gotten a little weird. No, but just like yeah, uh, like he has opinions and nobody really wants to hear them, you know. Opinions about mm, everything. Too many things. Anyway, your life hack. Life hack is, and this is the way I do, is you disarm people right at the beginning. This is totally like manipulative and stuff, but it's how I get over my social anxiety, right? <laughs> how you get over your social anxiety is you say stuff that like is like what? Like you talk, like you you just say you like be very blunt about things, and people are just like whoa, like they're totally their all their status so butter has like more evaporated. You. <gasps> yeah, you you totally flip the power dynamic, dude, and then it's like, and then you can just like play around because it's and because it's fine because like now I now I'm like comfortable, and you know what I can you can be in on the joke too. We can all be laughing. See, you know? now I feel even more bad. I was contemplating whether or not I should tell you this, but I've I've started doing your thing, asking people what they're thinking about. And, 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 <laughs> but I Taking don't my have, stick, dude. yes I have, but I don't have social anxiety. I disarm people oh. <laughs> when I don't even need to. Yeah, you know? yeah, you're like a guy who knows judo and just starts like flipping people over and shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. To, to make a really weird transition from the Holocaust to, to something else I was just thinking about. I, we were watching for film class, we were watching this, this Polish movie. It was kind of weird. I forget its name. But it was, it was like weird in a good way, and it ended with the German national anthem. It was about like Hungary and Austria and the power dynamic in the mid 19, uh, 1800s, right? So like 1850 revolution and stuff like that. And, and it ended on the German national anthem, and that was a really weird moment because I hadn't heard it in a long, long time. And I don't know how I feel about kind of feeling good about hearing it, you know? Which, I, I like everything about that makes me uncomfortable in some ways, not just because of the past, but also just because like national anthems and everything that's associated with like states. And I don't know. Well, one of the things that I think is, I think that's so, um, 
sort of uh, contemporary. I totally know why you think that, right? You want to be a cosmopolitan and you don't want to be partial to any country. But one of the things that's seriously sort of with that's been talking about, I mean, they're having a conference right now about it. Uh, and something that I thought about a lot when I was in, when I was in France uh, is the kind of concept of European identity, right? Um, not in the sense of like total Europe, but in the sense of like, well, you're in France. And, I, and, and there's a huge problem with integration in a lot of European states, if, I'm, if, if what I have read slash seen is to be believed, sure. right? I'm not necessarily saying that this is Germany or necessarily that this is all of France, but I know that there's definitely uh, sort of, even if you're Senegalese and you speak French, like there is definitely a big cultural divide. That, and it's true that, you know, when you come from Senegal, you go to the Senegalese places, like that's, that's, that just seems normal to me. And it's, and it's something that they're sort of, it's almost like you put, uh, I'm sure that we've talked about this before. It's almost like you put uh, a piece of like carrot in the stew, but it doesn't want to, it like stays fresh. Like they feel like, you know, you gotta become part of the stew, dude. You know, you gotta, you gotta get on, gotta get on, um, on our side or whatever. And I think it's really interesting that you sort of feel bad about that because it, it, it is something that we sort of have to grapple with. Like, what can we say is a European identity that is that is going to be sort of like uh, going to keep bits of the culture that we like, but also like, mm, I don't know, dude, because it seems like in America, if you have a community, everybody in Chinatown, nobody speaks English. Like, there are some people who are like, oh, man, like, if you come to America, you better speak American. But, you know, for me, you know, it's so great that you can walk down the street in New York and hear tons of different languages and, you know, a bunch of people living side by side. But I don't know if it's necessarily true in European countries. Your thoughts? It isn't. And we were having this conversation a couple of weeks ago with Barty, which is, I think, what you were thinking of. Uh, but I, so I think, I think the integration into other cultures isn't necessarily what I think of first when I think of statehood and things like that, right? Because having family in Italy and, and having grown up kind of not really between cultures, but with definite cultural influences from more than one country, and then coming here and, and feeling very much at home here, like I do feel at home, not just in Cambridge, but in the US in, in many ways, I don't necessarily really self-identify as, as super German or super Italian or super European, but at the same time, I, I do feel a connection to my hometown, to all the places that I've spent a lot of time in, and it doesn't, on an intellectual level, it doesn't really matter to me whether that is a, like a German place or an Italian place or whatever, but yet there is that connection that I feel to these things that are clear, like, it's, it's so arbitrary, which is kind of what irks me about it, right? It's arbitrary that I was born in this country that has this national anthem that has been abused in many, many ways, and that the first two verses of which are, are prohibited because they've been abused even more than just the song itself. And yet I feel a connection to that song when I hear it. And that is so, like why, where does that come from? And, and how, what does that mean? Because I think that in general, there's two kinds of nationalism, right? The kind that is, that is inclusive, that, that strengthens a community that exists and then there's the kind that is that is very exclusive that excludes everything else that is not part of that community right and in many ways there are comparisons to be drawn almost to a lot of other more or less arbitrary groups of people that come together and, and form a very strong community and i was thinking about this last year at, at harvard yale for example is like you have these two colleges and, and obviously like 
Like, we're not going to start fighting just because of a football match. But at the same time, there is that very strong sense of community and, and that kind of, that, that to me, it's a very positive energy that is released in those kinds of moments where you have like a crowd and they're cheering for something. But at the same time, that is obviously also excluding that other part of the crowd and it's, and it's this us versus them. And that's dangerous, I think, or it can be, it can become dangerous in many ways. Right, you made a great, you made a hugely, I totally love the point that you made about uh, there being sort of two different kinds, one of which is inclusive and the other which is exclusive. And I think it's very easy for an exclusive one to also be inclusive, right? Where you can say, hey, you know, oh man, the polls, like, uh, you know, we hate them, but also like the converse of that is we must love Germany, right? Um, I, it's so, I, I wonder and I hope that there can be a community which is solely inclusive while, while not, they're thereupon becoming exclusive, mm -hmm. right? And I know that there is a kind of othering that can happen, right? Because you know what, people in Harvard and Yale fight, and it's it's so weird because it's just like oh, it's the college you go to, and it is different than like swelling with pride, where it's like oh man, like you know, one thousand men of Harvard, you know, and it's different than that. And it's it, when you're like fist fighting with some kid who goes to school in New Haven, it's like you know, again, these are these are these are completely arbitrary. And I don't think that that I know what you I know what you're talking about when you kind of want to get into universal and it's like no like I'm I'm a human being I'm a, I'm a man of, of no country but I think that for me I, I I've been a little bit more okay with the fact that I arbitrarily like something somewhat than other things you know what I mean or that I I um and not and not because like I think that other things are wrong or bad or or uh, anything like that it's just that I arbitrarily like these things and you know what that's okay I can be from a country you know sure sure and and I I agree with that I was thinking about this the other day too with regards to, to sports teams right mostly people tend to like the sports team of their hometown and I feel like like think about sport what you may but there is almost nothing else that I can come up with that releases as much positive energy with as many people at the same time as sports do right so if you're if you're in a stadium with thousands and thousands of people who are watching the same thing and are getting excited about the same thing. I don't think there's really like rock concerts, maybe like big pop shows, big pop rock shows. That kind of happens there as well. But it's still a little different because it's not, you're not winning, right? You're just cheering for something. I think, but I think that, the, you know, in Europe, you know, people die after, I mean, there was this thing about this cup in, uh, in, uh, in El Salvador. Costa Rica, where people, three people were just like stabbed during a thing. You know, I think of, of like big rock shows as being maybe because there isn't there isn't an exclusivity because you're all sort of there. Thing right where where it, no sort of like vicarious sense of achievement or vicarious sense of empathy. You know what I mean? Where both of those things can actually be strengthened. Right? It's when you know you are with your team when you when you lose. Like if you're playing on a sports team, like if you're, you're on your team when you lose too. You know what I mean? That there is a kind of collective like okay, you know we can all be disappointed together. That is actually something that binds as well as winning. Right. Yeah. People. People are people are crazy. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that you. Uh, God, sorry. Please edit that out. I, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, gotta mark it. Uh, talking about. Uh, Austria and Hungary, um, they were hugely, they were like, for a, for a long time, they were the, they were the power, right? Oh, yeah. yeah the, and it's so weird because, you know, Hungary are, I mean, linguistically totally different, right? Actually, they come from the one, right. Hungarian is Finno-Uralic and, and German is, uh, you know, Indo-European. So I wonder what the, I don't, I don't know if you know about like the unification of Austria-Hungary or if school or anything like that because that seems like something that was like hugely influential in terms of uh, 
along with the unification of the German states, like this whole sort of cascade of events that led to World War One, right? Sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't remember the details super well, but but it. The way I do remember it is, is is that just kind of happened, you know, like there was no, I mean, which is which is funny to say, but but in the same way that, that German unification just kind of happened, there was not, there was not one person with a grand plan to like unify all the German states and then we make one Germanic union. It just kind of it, it kind yeah, of occurred, it's right? Smart, dude. Well, right, but but he he made it happen, but he he didn't. I mean like you you always need that catalyst to make something happen right but but he didn't i don't think he i don't think he could have made that happen if developments before hadn't led in that direction already right i agree with you however he's like yo i gotta unify the german-speaking peoples austro-hungary again like there's no like we all have the same word for flag. Sure. Right? Like, what what well, like, nationalism going to be in? Right. It was uh, absolutely, but but it's, I think there was a lot of because the countries were obviously so close together. They they shared the, the way I was taught at least is that that happened. They shared a lot of cultural history, right? So both in terms of like art and things like that, but then also just the wars that have been fought and similar dishes maybe being prepared, things like that, that led to a, a connection despite the language barrier. Interesting. Yeah, which is, it, it's it's kind of crazy that it actually happened, but in the same way that Elsa's Lorraine, you know, like in that kind of area, Definitely, that kind yeah, of happened, yeah. you know, like like people were German in, in one world war and then suddenly they were French in another, right? Okay. So those things at, at borders, those things can happen, I guess. You, well, yeah, I mean, even in Romania, actually, Hungarian is like, you know, it's spoken in some communities mm-hmm. and there is like a lot of sharing. Yeah, Alsace-Lorraine, yeah, well, I was super, I obviously lived in Lorraine, and yeah, going to Alsace was like, yeah, everybody speaks German and French, you know, that's just what, right. that's just like how it is, you know, and it, it, there is this kind of uh, gradient that I think, oh, it's just so, I just think that's one of the most interesting, there are all these sort of like shades, like it, it looks like a, it looks like, um, like an artist palette, right? When you sort of start like mixing the paint colors, mm-hmm. I just, I, I, you just don't get that in the United States because it, when you cross from Pennsylvania to New York, let me tell you, I do that. I cross from Pennsylvania to New York all the time. Let me tell you, nothing looks different. <laughs> like, um, actually, even though um, before my uh, <clears throat> my teachers were telling me that. It used to be that in New York the drinking age was 18 and Pennsylvania was 21, so they used to go. There's this like there's this inn that everybody used to go to that's literally right on the border, and they would have all these 18 year olds go. Yeah, and that, then, that still happens in Europe, right? So so say in Denmark, it's it's really expensive to buy alcohol, so a lot of Danish people live near the border go to Germany to buy their alcohol, right? Luxembourg, the t- yeah. tobacco. I see people buy. I, when I was in Luxembourg, people would buy, would buy tobacco. It was it was up to their shoulder, right? Like these giant. It's like I can't. I don't know. I mean, I know everybody smokes all the time. There. But like, you know, it was pretty ridiculous. That is also so interesting. Like when 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 friends visit me from back home and they don't see a lot of people smoking here, it, it really strikes them as odd. But it's because the US has had this huge campaign starting in like primary school, I feel like, right? Where you just you're told like no, smoking is bad and nobody mm-hmm. does. Mm-hmm. And that's been really successful, which is very interesting to me. Yeah, super cool. Even though I know that uh, so one of the things that's a great point, because whenever I see whenever I see people smoking here and they're like and they look a certain way, I mean I can usually tell people European just by the way they look. Yes. And it's not it's it's actually just the way like your faces I think European faces are just like fundamentally different somehow, mm-hmm. or, or at least the way they're dressed or something like that. And if they're smoking, it's like, yeah, like, are you from France? You're from Germany. You know what I mean? It's like one of, the, one of those things. Yeah, and I wonder about, uh, you know, because actually, 
Fun fact, fun Hitler fact, Hitler started the first anti-smoking campaign. Wow. Yeah, there you go. It was under the Nazis that that was anywhere that that was, uh, you know, seen as like bad or something that you shouldn't do. Interesting to me, because you have, the, in Europe, you have much more sort of like explicit like pictures of like diseased lungs, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, uh, that was only started a couple of years ago. That's true, but I mean, I, I, you know, the, the, the smoking is just like, it's so much more. I remember being in the halls in school and people would roll cigarettes like mm-hmm. as they were walking out. Yeah. It just was like, it was just totally disconnected from, you know, the way that I had, the way that I had sort of encountered sure. it before. Not that, 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 that it's neither good nor bad, like obviously it's not good for your health, but I mean, I wonder why there's such a huge disparity. Laws were changed at very similar times, right? That European regarding smoking in, in restaurants and bars, for example, right? The laws were changed here as well. So it, it, like that, it's just the campaigning that started earlier here, I guess, and it was a lot more rigorous. Mm-hmm. And, the, the, you know, in school, like if people know they're doing something terrible for their health, but just the cultural values haven't changed, right? Right, and I think that I think that almost has to do with sort of like Reaganism a little bit. I remember Dare. I don't know if you're familiar with Dare, but it was like it's a it's an anti-drug thing that was very popular in schools and it was popular to have like a Dare shirt and you know be like oh you know uh, just say no or whatever. That was a sure. huge. I think that sort of movement, that kind of conservatism, I think definitely demonized drugs and I think all drugs sort of equally. And so I could see that as being sort of something that uh, was part of a cultural shift, but didn't right. really because you know you don't have. Uh, Mexican cartels, you know, like, you know, killing each other for cocaine and cutting off your head, you know, it's just a little bit, it's, I, I think it is a little bit different culture, and I'm not, and I'm not, like, I think there are a lot of drugs that are, like, actually pretty fun, but I think that was probably one of the cultural shifts, though, I would say, like, man, in China, smoking is, like, huge, huge, huge. People, people who are, people who can, like, barely afford food will buy money for cigarettes, and the reason why, the reason why I thought it was so cool the difference between like uh america europe and asia in terms of smoking is that it's not as though smoking has a kind of it's not like a veblen good right it's not something that you use to exhibit your status but in china it totally is mm-hmm. right like you if you are like a person who can afford things like you should smoke because that's how you show like i am someone who can afford this that's very interesting because in china a lot of like social status seems to be seems to be playing a lot a role that is a lot more important in the economy still than it is, I guess, in the Western world. Can you? Would you agree? Like, so, just prestige buying things and and displaying wealth more prominently than common here. Do you think? I would say culture. I mean, how many times do you, if you listen to modern sort of like music? I guess I would say, wow, it is full to the brim of sort of like grandiosity about the amount of money that you have, you know what I mean? Especially in hip hop, you know? Sure, but, but, but I think, I don't know. I mean, well, it seems, I, it's, and numbers games are hard to play with, with Asian countries, but it seems to me that, that here, that is reserved for like the very, very wealthy, whereas in China or in Asian countries in general, it's just wealth, like whatever wealth you have, you display it. Whereas here there is almost a counter trend to that, where as long as you don't belong in that Gucci, Louis Vuitton, handbag culture, you kind of try to just blend in as much as you can. Yeah, and I think it might have to do a little bit with, this is totally armchair, not even armchair psychology, armchair sociology, whatever it is. But it seems like the, the and of course there's, a, there's an incredible wage gap, uh, uh, just really right. a huge amount of 
even in America, but I think in China, it's even more sort of glaring. And especially in India, my dad regaled me with stories of him being in India and there being, you know, people driving in, you know, whatever, like a Maserati and other people just like, you know, destitute on the street. That because the, the poor are sort of even more blighted in those Asian countries, it's like very important for you to demonstrate the fact that you are not yeah. part of that class, you know, because the, you, you, even more than the United States, you do take on a kind of stigma that is very hard to sort of shake off. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Because I feel like uh, in terms of cultural, like cultural ideas about social mobility, I think are much sort of more stringent in Asian countries, mm-hmm. I would say, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? But yeah, no, China, yeah. And that's amazing, right? Because now I was reading in the Wall Street Journal that, I mean, think about how many consumers there are in China, like just, just absolutely incredible amounts of consumers in China. And that's one of the reasons my brother was working for Microsoft. He went to China to like talk to students about Office and how they were using it, you know what I mean? Because it's, you know, Chinese students. Wow, huge, huge, huge market. Um, but the thing is, is that now, because of sort of like the different Chinese years, right? If there's, um, it, 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 this is during the year of the dragon, I don't know if it's still a year of the dragon. Um, they would have like, oh, you're the dragon, like Johnny Walker, or you're the dragon Versace, or you're the dragon that, you know, because they, they have sort of seen that, you know, the, um, the immense amount of wealth that is in China, I forget how many billionaires they have, that, you know, th- that's a market for these sort of luxury goods that are sort of over the top in a way that... Oh, absolutely. I and I think, I think that market is not underestimated by the companies necessarily anymore, but I think the, the broader Western population hasn't really understood how important that market is and how many decisions that companies make, that, that Western companies make, are already guided by Asian markets. Well, yeah, especially because I think almost in an, almost in an opposite way, uh, in some ways, I know that of course there's always still like, you know, Orientalism and sort of like thinking about, oh, the East as being this sort of, you know, savage place or whatever, but I think there is um, in Asian countries often sort of a, a little bit of a fetishization of Western products, you know, oh, sure, yeah. because um, there's not a ton of, I, I think the whole idea is that like, oh, made in China, it's like, oh, in China, you know what I mean? And I'm not saying that, I mean, I'm sure I consume tons of Chinese goods that are that are perfectly great, uh, but it's, it doesn't have the sort of prestige that I think a lot of the sort of names that, that they look for um, are in. And so I think that especially things at like the higher end of the market definitely are looked, because, you know, you're... Since everything is made in China, it's like if you're not going to buy the, the tippity top, it's like, well, it's already made here. So there's no, you know, I think that those kinds of more commonly uh, commonly consumed goods are definitely more domestic based. But mm-hmm. really the. Yeah, I think I think I think it's it's becoming more and more meaningless where something is produced. You know, like, like just because something is produced in America doesn't necessarily mean it's better quality than something that's produced elsewhere. Well, but I do think that, I, did, well, I mean, we do have labor laws in this country, right? That's, yeah, that, oh, is sure. part, that is part of it, right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I'm not saying that, that, that like labor conditions and things like that are different, but I think, you know, like, like if you're given two pieces of clothing, for example, you probably wouldn't necessarily be able to tell a difference in quality between two countries. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, actually, yeah, exactly. And you know, if you if you buy like two dif- two of the same shirt at like a store, one of them made in Mauritius and the other one made in El Salvador, right? Like the of course you know the, the global labor market is just yeah. like totally yeah. Totally and nuts. interestingly, I hear from from people with friends, uh, from people with friends. I, I, I know some people. Oh, you do? Oh, you have friends? Oh my no, gosh. I don't personally, but I know some people mm. who do. Oh, you and it's money it sounds like it's yeah. I, I actually I listen to their podcast yeah. and they tell me about their friends. <laughs> Yeah, my brother had a friend um, for like a year, actually. Oh, uh, so he right. was, yeah, he was really, he, he said best year of his life. <laughs> yeah, I bet it was. Yeah. I bet it was. I hear from people with kids 
<laughs> that, that kids tend to be like really amazed by by tags and like clothing, right? So they look at it and they go like, oh wow, this was produced in like name insert country here, right? So so I think that's also something that's interesting is that obviously that stigma made in China is bad or made in Bangladesh is bad, right? That 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 is so inert in our culture now, but kids don't know about it. And I think it's always super interesting to, to go to children and see what they find weird versus what they find cool, right? Yeah. And that's something, yeah, I don't know, it was just interesting. That's actually really, it's a, uh, yeah, that's a great point. I had never heard that before, but that's really cool. And yeah, it's true that, I mean, though the labor market is absolutely weird, uh, it's also super cool that like yeah. all these pants like were made in China. Yeah. Like wow, that's amazing. I mean, can, can you imagine going to someone in the fifties and being like, "Listen here, sir. Like next, <laughs> your next Levi's time, yes, jeans. Yes, yeah. these Levi's are gonna be made in China. Yeah. Can you believe it? <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think I think that they would have been totally dumbfounded. You know, because of course, and uh, you know, for the longest time, let me tell you, uh, when Mao was was in power, uh, you like made steel in your backyard with grills. Like if you had glasses, you were killed. Like they were they were thinking like. Why well, those, those Chinese are never gonna get that? Never gonna get their heads on right, are they? But it turns out that you know uh, <clears throat> they did. I read today. I haven't read the article yet. Uh, read the headline. Yeah, I read That's the pretty headline. much all you need. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, it actually wasn't even a headline. It was a tweet about oh. an article. <laughs> so I read. I read, I, read a, I read a retweet of a Facebook post by a guy who knew a guy who read this article, and it sounds. The internet is never wrong. Is all I'm saying. That's right. But uh, it was actually a person I, I do respect for his knowledge, and so I feel like I, I am allowed to express his knowledge. Is he a tech guru? He actually is not really. He his name is Glenn Fleischman. He is a journalist, and he went okay. to Yale, and he's like he's super smart, and people like him. Anyway, he was talking about how. Hitler apparently to bring this back to the Holocaust. I want to keep talking. I, I will. You can never get it to Hitler. From we can do a whole Hitler show. I'm, I, I honestly like. I, look, I, I, I can go so deep in Hitler. Okay. Uh, he apparently was really into into Ford, like not like like and Ford's automation probably had some influence at least. And that was I had never heard that before. That was fascinating. Ford me. was in was a giant. Giant, giant anti-Semite. He hated the Jews. Right. He, he, he supported he Nazis thing, from the like beginning. He wrote a book that was apparently inspired. Yeah. Well, no. Well, he was. He was like. Uh, I don't think he was a member of the American Nazi Party or anything. But he definitely gave a ton of money to the Nazis and set up tons of Ford uh, auto plants in uh, in Germany during the time. And of course, uh, during my uh, class about everyday life in Nazi Germany, we looked at some posters of like Ford. You know, when we were talking about industrialization, and it's true. Right. We. we, we just like we were saying, Ford, actually, I think it's something like this, that there was a time when 50% of the cars that existed were Model Ts, which oh, is like, sure. wow, the, the penetration of the of Ford was absolutely, you know, mind-boggling. But, um... <laughs> it is a modern, it is a modern crime in a way that, that no other ones are because uh, there was a definite sort of step-by-step, -step. like what was the Ford Revolution? In fact, this is definitely referenced in Brave New World, great book, which you should read by Aldous Huxley about a dystopian future. They're all about Ford, right? Because it is this kind of mechanization. And I think the reason why Aldous Huxley wrote that, and I'm pretty sure he wrote it after, I'm pretty sure he wrote it in 60s, something like that, is, uh, maybe a little bit earlier, is that you you do mechanize you do that's what mechanization is like i know the technology is good but but there is a kind of abstraction away from actual human life that 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 makes you you know uh just take the take the life away from people before mm -hmm. they even die mm -hmm. yeah yeah exactly and that's what allows you to to 
to you know hate people. And then it's like, oh man, like how many people who were working in concentration camps like weren't really like big anti-Semites, but they just like you know befail is befail. Like went with the flow. And yeah. It's, yeah. Oh man, it's yeah. the, the banality of evil. I don't know how much Hannah Arendt you've you because like the. Yeah. Enough, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The trial of uh, Eichmann, just like, oh man, I just, it, it really, really impresses upon you the stuff. It's just like, wow. You know? You're at the Reader. The Reader, Der Vorleser in German. Uh, it's, it's a book, it's a novel about the way that the, the first post war generation dealt with their parents' crimes. Oh. And like it's, a great book. it's about a law student who has an affair with this woman and turns out she is actually in, in, in court and for at concentration camps. Wow. And they, so they meet and they, but then they kind of lose each other. And he always read to her because she wasn't able to read. He didn't know for a while. So there's kind of the the first act. I think it's. I don't think it's a play, but it's it's kind of a, the first a act of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it's 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 the two of them and, and kind of their love affair, and it already deals somewhat with the issue. But but it's really in the second act where they meet again in court, and he kind of finds out about her past, is when when the story unfolds and you kind of understand so much more about the issue itself that that the novel's tackling, but also about their relationship and, and some of the quirks of their relationship that you maybe don't really understand in, in the first part of the book. And it's, it's one of the, the big German novels that you read in German high school. Huh. Yeah. That just seems like such, a, such an amazing, oh man, think about, you know, if your parents were like Vichy or, or, or you know, um, yeah, it just is really, again, the banality of evil and sort of this kind of double face that can that can come about that even you know that even that even does come about you know now when you have people doing doing bad things who are not who aren't maybe they aren't bad people I mean I, if there are good like fundamentally good and fundamentally bad people it's like a question that is much larger than, oh, than yeah. what we're able no, to talk about. No, you're always you're always influenced by your environment a lot more than people want to give credit to. Right, but you also, man, I just, you, you, it, it, it's this thing where, and I know that this is a problem, right, and this is a fallacy where it's like, I must be the exception, like, man, I would totally join the resistance, or alternatively, this whole bystander effect where it's like, I would have called 911. You know, the, 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 there is, there's a kind of, like, self-exceptionalism that comes along with that, that I, that probably isn't true, but then, oh, man, then, it, then we come back to, like, what does that mean about me? You know, like, am I just, am I just a... Uh, I'm just an agent, you know, for these like larger forces. You know, do do I have agency? I mean, what what would I have done? You know, and that's just, oh man, the 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 the, the bravery of the people who didn't, you know, Oscar Schindler. Oh my God, like, I I just I just wow, um, the bravery of those people who are able to stand up to just this overwhelming cultural and just the fear, man. It must have been absolutely incredible. Absolutely.